Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a fun one. We get to hear from the jack of all trades, Phil Thornalley. Now, you may know that name. If you don't already know it, know it, I've mentioned it a few times over the years. He's done so much music that I love. He's, his first claim to fame, really, was producing The Cure's album, Pornography. And then he went on to join the band for about a year and a half as their bass player. He ultimately left, and then stormed out on this career of production that went with people like Duran Duran, uh, the Thompson Twins, where he earned a Grammy nomination, Andrew Gold, Robbie Neville. He took over for Clark Gatchler and Johnny Hates Jazz for a while. He even worked with Ricky Gervais when Ricky Gervais was a musician back in the day. Uh, Brian Adams, Prefab Sprout, Ash, Cyndi Lauper. We talk about all that stuff. Maybe his biggest claim to fame is that he co-wrote the song Torn, which became, as you guys all know, one of the biggest singles of the 90s for Natalie Imbruglia. That really changed his entire life, as it would for anybody. Now, last year, he put out one of my very favorite albums of the year. He is hugely influenced by Todd Rundgren. And I know we have a ton of Todd Rundgren fans out there, because I hear from a lot of you. So, he put out this album called Astral Drive that is really a love letter to Todd. In fact, in keeping with the spirit of Todd, he even performed all of the instruments himself in that same sort of slipshoddy way like Todd did with Something Anything. So the album is just a burst of sunshine. You're listening to the first single off of it right here. It's called Love Is Real. I love this song. In fact, I love this album. We we throw in a couple other tracks from it as well. So I hope you enjoy this, this, this interview. So many great stories. Such a fun guy. I love it. Very self a facing, I love the people who get it, and uh, Phil absolutely gets it. So he called me from his home in London. So I have wanted to have you on here for years, and uh, your name has popped up a couple of times in other interviews, because you're one of these, first of all, I've never seen another Thorn Alley in my life. So your name being so distinctive, it became this name where every time I would hear it or see it, I would think, there's that name again. And it would pop up on all this music that I really, really love. And it would be in, you know, it'd be as random as The Cure or Johnny Hates Jazz or Brian Adams. It was just so, it was touching everything. And I just thought, I got to know this guy. So yeah. um, recently uh, I, di- I discovered Astral Drive, which is so much fun. I love this album. Yeah. Thank and, you. Yeah. Yes. It was and fun from, to do. Yeah. Good. And from what I understand, it's sort of like a an homage or a pay of respect to Todd Rundgren, who I guess is your hero. Tell us tell us why you like Todd Rundgren and how it influenced Astral Drive. Well, I think, uh, f- firstly, I wouldn't go as far to say it's an homage. I, uh, I, I actually, I'm like a Todd Rundgren fanatic. 
And when I was um, 14 or so, um, my friend from Johnny Hayes Jazz, Mike Nacito, we grew up together in the same, same town and we were sort of learning guitar, writing songs. I was learning piano and uh, sharing music as you do when you're teenagers. Sure. And um, I went around to his house one day and he says, you know, he's, this was in the 70s. So his dad had this, uh, this beautiful old, this hi-fi with these mm-hmm. big brown headphones. He says, you got to listen to this. You got to listen to this. He played me what turned out to be uh, a song called Useless Begging from the Todd Rundgren album, Todd. It's like Ruby says Our dreams have magic But I know useless begging won't help me I literally, you know, people talk about epiphanies, you know, it, it, in the religious sense of kind sure. of like, a, um, but but that's how powerful it was. I, I heard this song. I heard this song, this sound, and I and I literally um, thought I have got to know how you do this. You know, wh- why do the drums sound like that? Why does the singer sound so um, so believable? Why are the harmony vocals so like uh, transcendental? Transcendental was the thing. It kind of transported me to this place where I thought that now I un- now I understand my life. So it was a really beautiful moment. And uh, so fast forward 40 years later, uh, having a career producing, playing in bands and uh, mainly writing songs, really, mm-hmm. I finally got round to uh, making this Astral Drive record. And so because you could say perhaps it was the concept was just to go back to my teenage years and revisit the the way I felt when I was a naive yeah. music loving nut like we all were and so of course what comes out of me it is all my love of Todd Rundgren's music wow. so in a sense it's it, it that's just my default position is to because I just grew up listening to all of these records, yeah. I've got a kind of a default position. Some people might be the Beach Boys or the Beatles. You're aspiring to that. You may not actually achieve that, but uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So Astral, Astral Drive, I wrote all the songs, just imagining I was a teenager again. Yeah. And, and um, using the instrumentation that I'd heard on those uh, 70s Todd Rundgren records like sticking to that palette of sounds
Drive. That's a street he lived on, or something like that. Well, Is that right? Correct. Yeah, I, I I wanted to keep, perhaps foolishly, I decided to um, keep the project as anonymous as possible. He said, talking on the radio. About. <laughs> so uh, when I was looking for a band name to fit the concept, um, Astral Drive was the street where uh, Todd Rundgren lived when he made his what some people consider his sort of seminal pop album, which was called Something Anything, uh-huh. had its Hello, It's Me, and I, uh, I saw the light, his, big two, his two big radio hits. Not only did I like the fact that it was a bit cheeky, but also the idea of, you know, when you're a teenager, you do spend more time perhaps in a certain state looking up at the stars, you know, going like, wow, what's out there? Infinity isn't life yeah. beautiful? And and so it married with that too. So there's kind of two okay. things going on. Yeah. Why did you feel like you had to change your name? Why could it not just be a Phil Thornalley album called Astral I, Drive? Uh, I honestly hate my name. I hate uh, both my names. Really? And, <laughs> yeah. And and it's just like it's it's just like clunk 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 clunk. Yeah. My okay. Name. So uh, I That's I decided. So interesting. I thought Astral Drive was just very more poetic, That's great. And, yeah, and it's and it makes people go, well, "Why is it called Astral Drive?" But uh, yeah. I, okay, has he has Phil has uh, Todd heard this? Because you guys Todd, you guys know each other a little bit, right? I don't know Todd. I have met him a few times. Okay. Um, I, I actually know his uh, right hand man, Chasm Sultan. Of course, yep. He's based with him, and, and is you know terrific uh, singer. Not only mm-hmm. uh, does the harmonies, but sings lead in utopia as well mm-hmm. and we've we've written songs together i've met todd a few times but he, i've just generally had the impression that um you know like all of us i think are aware uh yeah, it's dangerous to meet your heroes yeah and yeah i did right. meet him once his uh here's a here's a kind of a name drop story i i, I was it. good friends with the drummer of psychedelic furs vince ely ah. and i was engineer on their first two albums um their third album was produced by Todd Rundgren. Mm-hmm. Todd is over in England doing doing some concerts, and uh, Vince calls me up, very kind of like spy, secret agent. Like he's going, <laughs> "Gonna go out. We're gonna go out for dinner tonight with Todd, but don't do the fan stuff." You know, he was he was really <laughs> like, "Don't go into. Why did you write that song?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, like a like an idiot, this was my one chance. I was probably about twenty one or twenty two, and uh, maybe he would have, you know, it, it was it was a nice dinner, but um, it it wasn't exactly. Um, so you went, but you didn't corral him with questions. No, no, no. Okay. I was. I'm. I'm just too. I'm too sort of English and polite. And right. I was. T- 
you know, I did what I was told. And actually, I had a yellow VW Beetle then, and I actually gave him drive back to the back to the hotel and to his hotel. And he probably didn't realize it, but there was like there was you know like a Utopia album ready to go blast. Really? <laughs> but, but I was cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Those days, my VW Beetle. You know, I, I used to have quite a few uh, kind of um, stars of the day. Just ended up in this very cool yellow beetle. Man, me where's, that, where's the beetle now? Well, I, I sold it to my friend about 10 years ago. Oh, but, yeah. it belongs in a museum. Yeah, 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 it, yeah it's, <laughs> it's probably in a, in a breaker's yard now. But yeah. So, I'm imagining all the all the human oils and secretions that are on the yes. seat, uh, you know, the it's passenger seat DNA. in your car. <laughs> right. DNA, John. It's yeah. Just, but uh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. Um, that's it. That was my uh, and then I, and then I've met I met Todd once or twice at Soundcheck, but it was just a cursory and polite chasm saying, "Oh, this is my yeah. friend Phil," and I, you know. Okay. You're in sound check. You've got a hundred other things you're worrying about. You know, like the vocals too loud. Yeah. The snare drums too bright. The, yeah. So okay. you've got to be cool or try to be cool. I understand. Has Todd heard Astral Drive? Do you know? Or has he commented uh, on it or anything? He No, I know for a fact I had a signed CD. Uh, there was one very exciting night about four months ago where there was one of these um, events, they're called Todd Stock, where all the fans get together, yep. the Todd fans. And, and I think it was in um, Virginia or somewhere like that. And I got a very excited message from from a, a mutual friend who was there saying, uh, and showed me the signed CD with Todd saying, oh, send me a link, because mm. he doesn't have CDs or anything. Right. So um, I sent via Chasm, I sent him a link for the album, but... Who, but uh, no, no comment, no okay. comment yet. I, I think he's so blown away with it. He's <laughs> he's still on the floor. I he's can't believe what he heard. Yes. Yeah. He he's probably he probably wants to go out to dinner with me and chat about how I made it. But it's, uh, <laughs> <Probably. yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, I'm not Todd Rundgren, but I absolutely love Astral Drive. Thank you. So much. I would shout it from the mountaintops proudly. Yeah. It is so much fun and wonderful. I love it. So thank thank you. you for doing that. All right. Now you've done so many things. I, I'll t Okay. I'll even probably cut this part out. I'll tell you, most of the time these interviews last about an hour, Phil. You've done okay. so many things that I would, uh, you tell me, I may keep you a little bit longer because you've got a, I've got a million questions for you. Yeah. But, fire um, away, John. Fire I'll away. I'll do my best. So yeah. let's, uh, I'm going to try and go a little bit chrono chronologically here. And the okay. first big one that, you know, most people know about is The Cure. Yes. And uh, I... I hate to admit it. I had Lowell Tolhurst on here about a year and a half ago, and I read his book, and uh, I was going to reread it, at least the pornography part, so I could remind myself how you got involved, and I ran out of time. So tell us how oh, you came yeah. around to, first of all, pornography is like one of the darkest, yeah. heaviest, moodiest albums in history, and it doesn't sound like the rest of your stuff, so I'm curious how you even began there. Just 
Well, uh, it's actually linked to uh, Psychedelic Furs again because um, the producer of the, the, the records that I engineered was Steve Lillywhite, you know, celebrated. Um, He's the best. He's one of producer. my favorites. Yeah. And uh, but he is something else. He was in. He was such a kind of an energy in those days. He could make the shittiest band sound good just He's by the best. Get, getting them into a, a good space. Yeah. Anyway, I think the cu- the Cure were looking for a new. Uh, producer who was probably their age and i think i i don't know that for a fact but i think steve lee Lou white put in a good word for me and i actually kind of not knowing i did an audition with them you know they came to record the demos for the album and i think it was actually just to check out whether they could um put up with me and that went well and you know we were all the same age i'm a little bit younger and I think, you know, I, I got on with them. I think Robert was impressed with my dexterity with, um, with in my recording techniques. You know, the fact that I was 21 and I knew how to work the desk and get sounds. And, you know, I just, I, I, I was quite, quite, um, yeah, I was very opinionated. Mm-hmm. And they were really well rehearsed. And so that's how I ended up get, getting the job as, um, you know, principally the recording engineer, but... Uh, as the project went on, um, you know, became evident. Yeah. The the uh, the band's manager, who always tried to interfere with the production, was gradually being pushed away, mm. and uh, so Robert would turn to me for production advice. So it became a co-production, and uh, the whole the darkness thing. The songs were made like that, and um, the actual session itself was sort of just um, became this um, it was like being in a bunker you know uh, yeah drugs alcohol just That's what it cr- sounds like yeah you know? and so- and somehow um, you know LSD and most of the time I would be like the straight one trying to f- figure out how how we turn this in into an album but you know, Robert is a is 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 a really uh, I respect him a lot as as a songwriter and as a musician, and um, I don't know something just clicked and huh. and I was given lots of space to um, experiment. Okay, and they, and they you know liked what they heard. Good. So. so the that sort of dark broodiness on that album that's a depict that's an honest depiction of where they were at the time or. Or did anyone, did they come to you or did you go to them and say, guys, I have an idea for this album. Let's see how dark we can oh, get. You know no, what no, I, mean? I couldn't, I wouldn't claim any credit for that. No, the, oh, interesting. The, the, okay. the vision was, uh, you know, it's Robert's. It's the, the other guys, you know, that they play well and they do what Robert uh, sort uh-huh. of requests. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of drone music on that album, you know, right. where a, a, a two or four bar riff would be set up um pounding drums you know um ringing bass um maybe some kind of uh, pr- uh, primary synthesizer robert's sort of outstandingly individual guitar and then of course his lyric his strange lyrics with that with that kind of weird soulful sound that he makes so all that vision was theirs was robert's hmm. I was in a good place to capture that because they they gave me so much, um, okay. you know, like leeway to kind of go, well, what if we put the drum machine, this, you know, like experiment with drums and compression yeah. and like, well, double tracking bass guitars, just to try and things that you didn't do on a normal right. kind of pop session. 
Yeah. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Did Simon leave during the? I can't remember the timeline. Did he leave oh, no, during no, no, the no. recording of this, or what, how did you then become involved with actually joining the band? Oh, but the um, no, Simon was very tight with Robert, and I, and I guess they toured the album. And and by the way, just spo- spoiling back, it's going back a little bit. I said the album was a lot of fun. It wasn't really. It was torturous. <laughs> but um, having they, a production credit at twenty one like this was probably fun. Yeah, that uh, that was yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't real. I had no idea what effect that was going to have on my career then. So anyway, back to Simon. The 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 band toured the album, and uh, I think during the tour, Robert and Simon fell out badly. So some concerts came up, um, and um, actually Robert joined Susie and the Banshees. I think he was thinking of dissolving the Cure. Anyway, he said, "We've got these shows. Do you know any bass players?" And I had been. You know, I was I was a bass player in um, punk bands uh, up until I joined um, a studio. So I, being as ever the shrinking violet, I said, well, I'll do it. So we started with like um, a festival and a, and a mini tour of America. And okay. then I then I joined up for 18 months or so. And um, and then the machine spat me out the other side and signed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah i so i have a lot of questions about let's talk about you personally during when you left or were asked to leave or whatever um did you know or have a concept all along that your your tenure in the band was going to be temp, temporary or was that did that come as a shock were you really heartbroken when uh simon came back and you left it's always a drag when you get kicked out of a band you know you're yeah. sort of you're in a gang and then for whatever reason well, obviously, in this case, Simon and Robert made up again. Uh-huh. And uh, the the manager very artfully called me up and made me made me so mad, I said I quit, which is, was exactly the, what he wanted to hear. Mm, yeah. Because then nobody else had to make an awkward phone call saying. Yeah. yeah um, so that was that was a great lesson in the dark arts of the music business, yeah, yeah. or perhaps for any business actually, where sure. you you manipulate somebody perhaps naive to give you the result that you want. But you know what? I enjoyed the experience of the touring, but it actually was no good for me for my kind of health, and I went back to the studio, which is where I should be. Okay. So. You know, things work out, and especially yeah. all these years later, you go, um, it was so cool to have been in, like, a very cool band, yeah. experienced that, and I'm glad I did, and I'm and I'm glad I got kicked out. Okay. Uh, I do like to say, though, that the last show that I played with them at the Beacon Theatre in, in New York, I think it's the Beacon Theatre in New York. Anyway, I, I, I threw in some disco lines on the bass. <laughs> really? I, well, of course, I was the last show we'd been touring for weeks. I was just like, like eating nothing. There was nothing left of me. And so I, and I was a big fan of Boz Skaggs. Ah. And uh, I thought I'll put some Boz Skaggs in one of these tunes. Wow. And uh, I don't think that went down very well. So. I, say, I can't, I can't imagine the rest of the Cure listening to Boz Skaggs, you know, in the well, in the bus. Well, on no, the bus. Who knows? You know, yeah. but the image That's is great. So, sure, is so powerful that oh, some people forget that they're funny people. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you keep in touch with any of them? Are, are you in good terms? Have you ever talked to them again? No, I've I've spoken to. Did I speak to Lowell? 
Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've lost touch with him. I, I, okay. I, I've emailed uh, Lowell once or twice when he was writing his book. I think we were going to get together so he could get some verbatim mm. quotes, but he, even that didn't happen. So um, okay. I tell you what, we're friends on Instagram. That's there you how, go. That's how deep our friendship is. <laughs> that That's true friendship in this day yeah. and age, yeah. pretty yeah. much. I like, <laughs> I like his pictures. Yeah, sometimes he likes mine. So. <laughs> that's what it's all about. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Right. Now, uh, so we got to talk about what you accomplished during this time, just briefly. I mean, at least, if nothing else, you're the guy who produced and plays the bass on the Love Cats. I'm glad you know. Not many Americans know that tune. So oh, it's huge for Cure fans. Like I grew up a huge. I still am a big Cure fan. That was a huge song in our uh, life. That was just one of those sessions that. So after the darkness of, por of pornography, maybe it's now 18 months later. We're in a studio in Paris, and um, Robert had been trialing this just the bass line. He said, you know, had, when we'd been sound checking, he'd say, "I'll oh, try something like this." And then we ended up in this beautiful studio in Paris with like instruments, uh, orchestral instruments everywhere, vibraphones, timpani, pianos, tack pianos, wow. the double bass. And um, so basically for that session, which lasted about five days and we recorded three tunes, one of them was Love Cats, we sort of turned into this um, hot club kind of jazz trio huh. or, or or what, how many were in the band at the time? Maybe That's four. Amazing. There were four of us then. And I, so I was engineering it, I was producing it, and I had to figure out how to play the stand-up bass. So, yeah, it was just a magic session, you know? That's great. That's great. Um, yeah, that song is so good. And, I mean, the bass is what makes it so distinctive, that jazzy feel, and you're the backbone of that. That's I amazing. Know. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I did use, because... Uh, I I couldn't I didn't really know I didn't know anything about playing a stand-up bass. But obviously we're in Paris, so the assistant is speaking French, and my French is very limited. So in fact, if you want to know one of the dark arts of recording, <laughs> uh, 
the bass line, which um, let me just uh, I, I recorded on two tracks, and on the first track I put this bit. Oh, uh, can you hear that? Yeah. So on the first track I went. No way. And on the other track I put the bits in between, so I went ba bum bum. Oh, was it? So it went. Second track. First track. Second track. You know, that's... that's so, <laughs> oh, wow. If you ever listen to it, the record again, it's it's so fumbling. You know, if you listen to the bass close, closely, uh-huh. to, especially towards the end, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But so that's why. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Phil, you're blowing my mind. I mean, uh, a song I've heard a million times since I was a little kid, and to hear you just do that right then, yeah. that's giving me goosebumps. I, I wish I could have got the notes right. Um, I was just doing that. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I should play it on a, uh, an acoustic guitar here. Maybe this, I would actually get the notes right. Hang on, let me try it one more time, John. Okay, okay. So, um, first track. Can you hear that? Yeah. And then on the second track, so it goes, da-dum-dum. So anyway, that's wow. That's, yeah, I think it's a little. I, I actually almost got the notes right that time. So. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's just giving me the goosebumps. That is crazy. Thank you, Phil. I love that. Um, okay, one other thing we should say. Unfortunately, the one record of theirs you did play on was the top, and that's not a very good record. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah I think uh, I, I didn't actually play on that. I, oh, you're uh, not. I thought you were I, on there. My manager at the time was going crazy because I had a, a, a career as a producer and a mixer. So but by the time it came to record the top, I was engineering a Duran Duran record. Yeah. Then I then I engineered a Thompson Twins record. So I, I was in demand yeah. doing other stuff. Uh, much better records, by the way. Uh-huh. And, and so in a, in a way, in a sense, I dodged a bullet there because... Maybe if I had have played on the top, I would have mm-hmm. taken the band thing too seriously. But okay. it's a, it, it was a very dull record, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's not very good. Okay, well, that's interesting. I didn't realize you weren't on there. Everything I read yeah. said that you were. I'm free of any, you know, any charges <laughs> we're going to bring against me. <laughs> I can't blame you for the top. Okay, no. that's good. You're out of... You're yeah. out of the line of fire. That's great. Okay, so let's talk then. I'm trying to go a little bit chron- chronologically here, and you mentioned... Well, let's just get to Duran. You you engineered Seven and the Ragged Tiger, right? Yes, I can. Well, uh, my friend Peter Schweer started the recording, uh, the basic tracks, and then when it came to uh, overdubbing and mixing, I was brought in. The producer Alex Adkin was a great friend of mine and and mentor, a beautiful, beautiful guy who passed away, you know, in the eighties. Yeah, so he bought me. He, pa- he almost literally parachuted me in to huh. help him finish uh, that that album. It, we did that in Sydney, so that was that was pretty cool. Wow! And, I'm blanking. Uh, did did you produce or have you had something to do with? Um, is there something I should know? I I mixed it. I just had a great day. We had two days to mix it. They were the hottest band in the world. Yes. Every Bob Clear Mountain had tried to mix. Everybody that was hot had tried a mix. And then Alex, um, I was Alex's engineer, mm-hmm. and Alex Sadkin's engineer. And um, 
the first, we had two days to do it. And the first day, I was just on fire. Really? Uh, and, you know, I was just mixing away. I was making all the right decisions. And the great thing, of course, working with a partner like Alex, who would sit at the back of the room, if I was doing good stuff, he would say nothing. Mm. And, you know, like a good producer should. If it's going well, just let it carry on going well. Yeah. You know, there's no need to – he's he, – he, so um, – and we came in the next morning and uh, Nick Rhodes was like, that mix is fantastic. Let's just make a few changes. the kind of tastemaker for the band you know yeah, he was and a good tastemaker too yes i, I didn't absolutely. particularly most bands uh you work with you get on with someone you know there's someone that you um if you're the producer or the engineer there's you know someone that you you have an affinity for right like i felt like me and robert got on very well robert smith gone well mm-hmm. <laughs> but with duran I don't think I really bonded with any of them. Oh, so. really? Interesting. Huh. Well, yeah, that, to be fair, they were so massive at that point. Yeah, they were, yeah. It was like Beatlemania. There were girls outside the studio, okay. you know, going, going crazy. And so uh, I think maybe under normal circumstances that might have been different. But, yeah, they, but, were, they were pretty distracted. Um, so yeah. let, I don't know if this is a smart question or a dumb question. You'll have to tell me. Yeah. Um, you you know you work on Seven and the Ragged Tiger, and then they something's not quite clicking or it's not quite good enough. The the production work on the Reflex, so they bring in Nile Rodgers to sort of you know pump it up a little bit better, and his version is what goes out there, and it's a great song, it's a great single. Do you feel any sense of um, does that offend you at all? I mean, is it no. like do you take it personally or anything like no, that? No, like no, my no. work's not good enough. You had to bring in Nile. No, I think I think our, the the version that we recorded is on the album on, yeah. on Seven and the Ragged Tiger. It was only subsequently, when um, I guess they'd had uh, there was a song called "The Union and the Snake" was the first, yep, was the first single, and then I think maybe um, perhaps they went. To, I can't remember exactly, but maybe they went to the Reflex and said, "Oh, well, let's make this cooler or or, mm. or whatever." Make my stay. 
But you know what? By that time, I was on to the next album. You know, you just go okay. from one album to the next. And then okay. you hear the song on the radio and you go, oh, uh, all right, somebody's remixed it. I'm not. That's just the way it goes, you know. It doesn't um, bother you. No, as they say, like, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. that's, I've okay. done that. To, I've remixed other people's work. Hmm. I, I've done that to other people. And um, it's just nice to be able to say, oh, well, yeah, I, re you know, I yeah. was involved with that one that turned okay. out to be the big hit off of that record. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, so let's talk about the Thompson Twins. You mm. engineer Into the Gap. I believe you're nominated for a Grammy for this. Yes, it was. Yeah, I, I'd actually engineered the album before that as well, which Steve Lillywhite produced. Mm. And then and then they became... Um, actually, I did two albums before that. Into the he, Gap. Sorry, go ahead. No, did I, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Steve Lillywhite produced Quick Step and Sidekick? No, no. It, uh, there was an album called Set, which came... Oh, from, right, right, right. Yes, that Steve, one. I love that one. Yeah, and and that was the moment where um, Tom Bailey um, there was a there was a drum machine at uh, Rack mm -hmm. Studios where I worked. Mm -hmm. I, this was the sort of beginning of the second version of the Thompson Twins. So he wrote this song in the name of love, it, and mm -hmm. it, we used the drum machine, and I think it kind of pointed the way for what became the pop sound of Thompson Twins, and yeah. just they fired all the other guys. It were really good fun, by the way. They yeah. were more of like a talking heads collective. Mm -hmm. And then they became this, uh, you know, the band that made Into the Gap, yeah. which I'm, was... Um, I'm was, a little bit friendly with Matthew Seligman, who was their oh, bassist yeah. at the time. He's been on here a couple of times. So I, he's kind of told some of these stories, yeah. Yeah, because I actually, you know when I was talking about when you bond with someone in mm -hmm. a band? Mm -hmm. I, I really loved Matthew. Uh, he's we a sweetheart. Got, we got him very well and... Um, yeah, because he was a bass player, we had so much in common. I just felt there was a sort of lot of joy with yeah. him. Uh, but but then he, by the time they got to Into the Gap, he'd been fired. Sure. But Into the Gap, yes, it was my, I got a Grammy nod, which was, um, you know, I was 24 or something. I thought, uh -huh. I'm going to get another one of these one day. <laughs> but, but the... Uh, the uh, in those days, because there was so much more money around, the record company yeah. paid for me to go to Los Angeles, you know, from London to Los Angeles with, with my um, girlfriend to go to the awards. The award for best engineer of a pop album, which was my category, was at, um, took place at about half past eight in the morning <laughs> in, a, in, in, a, in an auditorium that had... I, and I'm not kidding. There might have been 17 people in there. It was, yeah. <laughs> and one great. and one of them, I actually Michael McDonald was there to pick up like uh, best gospel performance by a oh. I don't know by a rock singer or something. So it's very bizarre. And then later that day, we took some magic mushrooms and watched the rest of the show. So with Trent, Tina Turner, and all these weird Los Angeles record company executives who just looked like cadavers, you know. Was... <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's this why I don't such... get any work in America, because yeah. I say things like that. <laughs> oh, this is such great insight. I love it. Um, okay, so tell me about the creation then of Into the Gap. I mean, that was another seminal album in my childhood. I was 11, I think, or something like oh, that when that came out. 
Well, uh, you know, Tom Bailey was the the principal. Played pretty much played everything. Uh, was the singer uh, along with Joe and and Alana, who would occasionally sing bits and pieces. But again, this was a record that was produced by my mentor Alex Adkin, one of my mentors. So we recorded it in uh, Bahamas, and it was all no no. I think the very first. So this is how busy we were. We finished, Alex and me finished working on the Duran Duran record. We got on the plane, flew back to London, and the first thing that we did was mix Hold Me Now. So it was just like, what are we doing today? We're doing, yeah. uh, and it just turns out that everything that we were doing at the time turned into a massive hit record. You know, you're, you're just on a roll, yeah. but you have no idea. You're just, what are we doing? Oh, we're yeah. doing this. Okay, let's do this. So anyway, back to the album, Into the Gap, uh, recorded uh, Compass Point in Bahamas, and then overdubbed and mixed in um, back at Rack Studios in London. Yeah, and then got a Grammy nomination, which was fantastic. Wow. When you're in that, you were just sort of illustrating how you don't, you never know. And I, and I, I don't ask a lot of people on here that question of like, well, when this, you know, did you know when you wrote this or that that it was going to be huge? Because almost no, never do they know that. No, but nobody knows. Everybody no. and anybody. The one guy who knows what he's doing in the music business at the moment is the songwriter Max Martin. Yes, very true. He he just goes, and I, I most of the songs he does, they go to number one in the U.S. And you know what? They're fantastic records. Maybe he's the, maybe Paul McCartney and John Lennon knew what they were doing. I think they probably did. But you you make you make records all the way through your career. You just you you try and um, you've got technique, you know, about recording or writing mm -hmm. a song, and then you try and add, you know try and give it your vibe sincerely. You know, mm -hmm, you've got mm -hmm. to love what you're doing. I think that's the key. You've just got to go. I love. I'm going to do the best I can because I love what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then, and then every now and then, it becomes a hit. It's not as though on one record you go, "Oh, I'm going to try and not give a damn. I couldn't care less." If you don't love the record you're making, nobody else is going to. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you you don't stand a chance. I think that the experience with the Astral Drive album was actually I loved what I was doing, and I've had some great people come back going, "You know, we love these songs. We love Good. the sound." What else can you do, you know, yeah. John? You, you just got to do what you love. You love your show, and yeah, and so, and so that communicates to other yeah. people. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any kind of a hand? Well, let me ask you this: uh, Do you can you think of a song off into the gap? Maybe it's "Hold Me Now." Maybe it's "Doctor Doctor." I don't know. Where um, as a, and I don't know enough about engineering to know if you are making actual contributions to what yeah. is finally heard. You know what I mean? Like if it was your oh, it's my it was my idea to include the harmonica in You okay. Take Me Up or what you okay. know, something like that. Is there a song on that album that you feel any sense of ownership to? Like I came up with this one part and that was Oh no. I played guitar on Doctor Doctor. Oh you but, did? Okay. Yeah, but but only because um Tom just didn't do a very good job. So I said oh. let me let me try it. I saw you there Just standing there And I thought I was only dreaming, yeah I could 
I think I, uh, the ownership, uh, that's a good question. I think basically uh, working with Alex as producer, he just loved what I did. Mm. So it, whatever sounds, I would go, oh, I'm going I'm, I'm to make the congas, I'm going to yeah. compress them and, and use the room sound instead of having close sound. He'd go, I love it. Well, he he actually wasn't that exclamatory. <laughs> he he would uh, he would just look very pleased. Though all the Thompson Twins records were made very piecemeal, you know, drum machine, do and then Tom would play the chords, then Tom would do the the bass synthesizer, then Tom and, and Joe would do some percussion, and Lana would do some percussion. It was one. It was overdub, overdub, yeah. overdub. Okay. There, there was no band vibing in the room. But going back to your question. With that record, because I wasn't involved with the writing, I'd like to think I came up with some good sounds, but uh-huh. uh, I, I, it, it was principally Tom as the uh, as the chief composer, um, Alex keeping Tom perhaps focused on making a cool record, and then me somewhere down the list just drinking coffee and <laughs> having fun. It, to answer your question, no, I don't have any ownership of any Okay. And actually, specifically going back to the way you started on um, on the song, um, you what you take it? me up. You take me up. It's actually mm-hmm. a melodica. It's 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 like oh, you know the melodica, yeah. like a little yeah. keyboard that you. Yep, you're right. Um, yeah, but it sounds like a harmonica. But but oh. I can't let those little details go by, John. <laughs> I'm glad you corrected me. <laughs> Because you're I'm right. Kidding. Now that you say that, I'm. You know, I think all along. I think we've always. In fact, I think I. I've seen Tom in concert a couple of times, uh, recently, and just a few months ago I saw him, and I think really? he may have maybe even been miming that he was playing the harmonica. Maybe I have that wrong, or one of the girls in the right. band. Anyway, okay, so it's a. It's one of those. Got it. It's one of those. Yeah, I. I. I remember now. Okay, good. Um, He's a great now, musician, by the way. He's. I love him. Really nice. Just always came up with great chords and yeah i love him i've been trying to get any one of those guys on here alana's people turn me down because she doesn't talk about pop music anymore and joe has fallen off the grid somewhere and tom's people the timing is never right so one of these days hopefully Uh, i can get tom on here we'll see yeah 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 i'm out out of touch with him so are you oh too bad um now before we get into johnny hates jazz i want to throw a couple of a couple of like one-offs at you and yeah. one of them well two mean a whole bunch to me and one of them is wax right between hey. the eyes
That's one of my favorite songs of all time. I love that album. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Andrew Gold. I find him a really interesting person because he's one of these people who was such a great... It's a little bit like a Christopher Cross situation where in the 70s when videos weren't such a big deal and you could be kind of a red guy with long red hair and a beard, it didn't matter if your music was good. But then when style overcame substance, he kind of got lost in the shuffle. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, and also his partner at the time, you know, um, Graham Goldman, who's a good, mm-hmm. he's still a good friend of mine. They were so, the fact that they got a record deal was probably, even though they were maybe in their late 30s then, uh-huh. but, but which wouldn't be so unusual now to, but I heard the music and I thought, um, I, I thought, oh, we could, we could make a good record. So yeah. I signed up for that. And you're right, Andrew, well, the pair of them are, just uh, you know what Andrew's passed on but um, yeah. what a beautiful voice so musical uh, yeah you no know, you just he, he was I kind of had to um, uh, you know I was a lot younger than them and very early on in our sessions I had a kind of a Andrew was like a kid in a candy store he was he was very excitable very very talented by the way but because I was the producer not a great moment where I had to say you know just stop, please stop fucking around. I'm trying to make it pretty much. And so, but, uh, but then to immediately go on to a positive story, you know, uh, when we made right between the eyes, it's such a cracking record. Uh, I love that song so much. And the sound, it's one of those times where everything just falls into place. Of yeah. course, it was a great song. Andrew was a great singer, but I remember, and it had a nice feel like right from the get go, Things that perhaps um, most, uh, most listeners wouldn't even think twice about. Just d- decisions like instead of using, uh, the, there was the Rhodes electric piano was a very warm sound that most people used on records. And I, and I said to Graham, why don't, instead of using that, why don't you kind of, why don't we recreate that on a guitar? So these are the sort of subtle mm. details that I enjoyed. But the the bit I love about that record, the solo in it has got a lead guitar, and then there's this kind of very seventies synth, and then um, w- with Andrew singing along in a ooey 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 type mm-hmm. of voice, you turn the tap and music came out of him, and Graham too. Yeah. But I think Andrew in particular, he could bring all this harmony to. Um, I had him once uh, at the recording studios where we were, there was a stairwell and um, I would have him, because he was, because he was so melodic, I would just have him go out and just sing whatever, mm-hmm. not, not the lyrics of the song, but for background vocals, just say, okay, sing a part, um, now run the tape again and you won't hear the first part, but just sing something else. And you'd end up with these kind of beach boy, mm. Because he because he was just musical, yeah. he couldn't sing a flat note. You know, mm-hmm. it was it, um, so that was a real joy. And the fact that that record, I think it got top forty in the U.S. and was number one in Spain. Thank you very hey, much. Hey, there you go. Well, it's nice That's... to know other people appreciated that because oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that whole album, uh, and Did... but especially that song. Yeah, it's a cracker, cracker. Yeah. Tell me, tell me an Andrew story. I, I, again, I just find him so fascinating and mysterious. Like, for instance, I mean, 
you know, after his solo career ended in around like I want to say like seventy nine, maybe or something like yeah. that. It's uh, it whatever he's doing from then on for the rest of his life is happening in little spurts that are well off the map. You know, the yeah. I I think right between the eyes barely missed the top forty. Actually, I think it hit like number forty one or forty two. Oh damn you, John! Damn you! I'm yeah. sorry if I've ruined it for you. I could be wrong, but I think that's yeah. what happened. You killed and, my, uh, you killed my buzz, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I uh, you know, other than wax, there's not he doesn't do much on like a. That's you know, yeah. people are aware of even. I think he even made some like, but a Buddy Holly tribute record and like a Halloween noise effects record and weird he, stuff. Yeah. He was, and he, I know he was producing a popular Japanese artist. I think he did like Beatles karaoke records where yeah. he because that's one thing about that. Here you go. There's a story about Andrew. He was a Beatle nut. You know, a Beatles nut, rather. You know, he'd loved. Mm. And you could. Pr- I saw him play at Graham Goldman's wedding, in fact. Mm. He was in the band, in the wedding band, and they just went from one Beatles song to another. He could play, he could sing all the parts, but, you know, he was playing guitar that night, but he just knew every single note. But I think for a musician and, and, a, and a person of his intelligence, his mother and his father were both in the film industry as musicians. Yeah. And um, it was evident that with him, too, he, he had a real gift. And perhaps as you pre- prefaced this, this section talking about Wax, the fact that he was this goofy, redheaded, a bit of an oddball, but, right. but um, you know, a big heart. I think that I, I felt he was carrying a lot of pain for the fact that he knew he had this rich talent that had become not obsolete, but had, it was it was not being respected. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but for, but for me, it was great to have, you know spent whatever we did two or three months on on that uh, okay. on that album. And I can't believe I, you know, I was pre- I was producing by then. I can't believe I was telling Andrew how yeah. to sing lines, you know, That's like amazing. No, Andrew, don't sing it like that. S- listen to me, <laughs> sing it like this. One idiot. I I tried that for about twenty minutes and then I gave up and I said, no, you just sing it the way you want. To <laughs> okay, before I get to the next one, I I this is sparking a question for me, and I had I talked to Stephen Bishop oh. here a year a few years ago and. He was close with Andrew and we were talking about, I was plying him for stories too. And he actually alluded to the fact that Andrew, uh, he liked his drugs. Uh, not that he was necessarily a drug addict, but that he yeah. uh, sort of, you know, he maybe held on or did them longer than most adults might in that situation. And I'm just curious if, um, you know, we've joked about harshing buzzes and stuff like that, but yeah. are, have, are, in, during the 80s, especially, are drugs kind of an ever-present, yeah. um, you know, thing in all these recording sessions and everything no, like that? Um, a lot of them were, especially the early 80s. There there was very rarely a session went by without, you know, like cocaine, the worst, the kind of the biggest waste of money ever. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that was more the vibe. There was, you know, maybe some people smoked pot. I, I was aware that eventually Andrew did did have some issues, but when we were making our record, he was sweetness and light. Oh, good. And, no, I, I mean, to me, he was sweetness and light. Mm-hmm. I know, I know, he he had mental anguish, 
and to, it was very odd he he would be he would call his therapist you know every, mm. that was the first time i became aware of you know somebody being honest about their mental health issues so that was but okay. I, at the time the our sessions were i think the, the the most rock and roll that we got would be um like go for a curry and uh and a and a pint of lager okay or a pint of beer but certainly at the beginning of the 80s uh there was very rarely a session went past w without Something you know there yeah without okay. the producer pulling some out and or, or the drummer sneaking off to the, <laughs> the loo or but um you know uh, but then i think by the certainly the, the sessions i worked on by by the, the end of the 80s most of that stuff had gone it hmm. to my to my knowledge i had certainly um I, i'd become a kind of committed pot smoker by then hmm. and all that other stuff i i had uh, realized was I'd say, you know, it was no, it was no good for making records. Right. It was no, no good for your life, but it's a harsh lesson to learn. You're right. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. not everybody learns it. So, yeah. Uh, okay. I was curious. I wondered if there was yeah. a connection there. Now let me throw another one at you. Uh, Robbie Neville, Say La Vie. Say La Vie. That song is a classic. That yeah. guy, speaking of mysterious, I I get requests for him all the time. I've tried to find him. Who oh. knows where he is or what he's doing? How oh, did you get working. involved? Yeah, I, I, he's a behind-the-scenes guy. In fact, I think he had something to do with, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know and who asks me for him all the time, I think he had something to do with the writing or production or recording of those high school musical yes. movies that came out recently. I've never seen one of them, but he was involved yeah. in that. So I think he's still very much behind the scenes, but he isn't out there in front. I think he's sort of contracted, to, he was for a spell, to Disney to create yeah. content for them. What content? I, sorry, that's a horrible word, to write songs for sure, them. Sure, sure. But um, I don't think Robbie was ever really comfortable with being a pop star. So we made, when we made that album, we uh, I had now elevated from uh, being engineer and mixer to being co-producer so uh, even though alex was still alex sakin was the, the principal producer so that was a good moment for me and we mm. spent a long time i think we spent about eight months making that album you know uh, in those days you would work 12 14 hour days in the studio because you had to get the record done and then you were mm. booked to do another album after that and another album after that 
during a around that time I was working so there's Duran Thompson twins Julian Cope uh, Graham Parker I was just going from one thing to another but with the Robbie Neville record we decided to um, work normal hours or more normal hours they start at uh, um, 12 o'clock and then go home at seven o'clock and uh, just kind of see what it felt like this was me and Alex I'd, and poor old Robbie had come to London so um, mm. that, they were the kind of rules we made. But thank goodness um, we, we made that hit record. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was he somebody, now he had had sort of a behind-the-scenes career, I think, up to that point, too. He wasn't like some guys, you know, sweating it out in clubs, if I remember correctly. So yes. was it one of these things where someone, he had always aspired to maybe put out his own album? Or was it a thing where a label or something said to him, you know, you write a lot of good stuff for other people. Have you ever thought of doing your own thing? And then he did his own thing. I honestly don't know, but I think mm. it's more the latter. Okay. I think he, he was writing songs for DeBarge and, yeah. you know, pop R&B uh, acts. I don't know exactly what happened. I was bought, I was bought in, um, you know, Alex said, oh, I'm going to produce this. I've, you know, found this kid, this kid and mm -hmm. the demos were all very in that kind of, the, the, that genre, that pop R&B genre of the mm. time, which was quite light and fluffy. What we were trying to do was give it some edge, make it sound more kind of tough R&B. Mm -hmm. So in, in many respects, I suppose, um, just it was it, like so many records are, they're contrived, you know, it was, it was uh, um, take these songs and let's see if we can turn them into okay. something and Robbie, you know, was um, he, he was game for that. He, he went along. I, he went along with uh, most of our ideas. I, I don't think he had a particularly nice time mm. making the record, but because we did push him really hard. Huh. And um, but you know what? We, we, we got, as you said, the Sailor V was a worldwide hit. So good. So, yeah, he always he struck me as someone who would have had I would think a lot to say about how his albums were produced because I think he probably maybe could have produced them himself in, in a way, you know, like he was, he was adept enough. Maybe, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's later in his life, but at that time, would he, um, you know, was he looking to you for, to make him better or to, to craft something special or did he have strong opinions about how he wanted these things to sound? I, I think, um, I think Robbie, if he had been producing it, I, d I don't think he had the full production chops at the time okay. to elevate it to a point where someone like Alex had uh, produced, you know, um, the Duran, Thompson Twins, Grace right. Jones, Bob Marley, went on to do Foreigners. You know, this was a guy who knew, had a pretty good feeling about what a hit record sounded like. Okay. And, and I think... Um, Robbie, to his credit, you know, just sort of let us get on with it. There were some battles, as they should be when you're making it, when you're making an album and people care about what you're doing. But ultimately, I, th I think it was a good idea to, to um, let Alex take, take the reins. Okay. Like, for instance, with the singing, we would spend a week doing a, a lead vocal on a song. We would just mm. like day after day after day, yeah. just getting it to sound like well for instance with say la vie you just wanted it to sound it's it's like it's a like a mini film you want every line to have 
um, drama and humor and like just and yet it sounds like it, it comes across as though we're just having a party in the studio mm. uh, but but that's the one you know like the, the trick of record production is to um, you know that was recorded across six months getting people to come in try different things mm. but but that ultimately what the listener hears they go like oh wow that sounds great that's a great vibe they must have recorded that in a day or in two hours, <laughs> right. you know, like Twisted Shout by the Beatles or something. Right, right. And nothing could be further from the truth, you know. Okay. Uh, um, this is a weird question, but it's just I'm going to ask it because if I don't, I might regret it. Who chose the lady that sings C'est La Vie, uh, the background singer? In the video, it's some really pretty Asian lady. I don't know if yes. that's actually who it is. No, no, I think, and that, that caused some, you know, I remember at the time that caused some upset for the uh, original singer. I can't quite remember. It was this either, there's a, a session singer called Carol Kenyon, or it was a session, or, or another singer called Stevie Lang. Hmm. And I can't remember which one of them took that uh, little feature, but they did a great job, whoever. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah, the reason I ask is because I'm a big believer in, there's just little hints of color, accents like that, like as simple as the right lady singing C'est La Vie at the right time after yeah. Robbie says it, that yeah. elevates a song, gives it a little sprinkle of magic. You know what I mean? These are the things that remind that we remember about a song or that we love, even if we don't articulate it very well. And you that's one of those moments yeah. for me. And so I wonder when, when something like that happens is it a producer who says you know what would be really great right here is if we sprinkle in a you know a lady with a great yes. voice or is it Robbie saying I wrote this song and after I sing C'est La Vie this other lady's gonna say you know what I mean yes. these little decisions so how did that like something like that how'd that even happen with that instance that um I I, I don't remember the the detail of who if it was on the original demo or if it was just something that became um you know, uh, when 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 the singers came in, whether Robbie said, "Oh, try singing that line," or, but it was a good it was a good idea. And I know what you mean. There's on, on there are perhaps other records um, that I might uh, more accurately recall. Oh, I said, yeah. do something here, or 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 so, yeah, whoever said the artist said, let's let's try this guitar line. But um, you're right. The, these little moments where. Um, that's what you hunt for when you mm -hmm. when you produce a record or when you write a song. You're you're hunting for um, thrills. Yeah. That the, these little things that make you go, Jesus, that is such a great. Yeah. Like you knock you you literally, no, you're not literally. You are knocking yourself out with. Yeah. I can't believe I just came up with that idea for a lyric or yeah. idea for a melody or or the bass line or the stupid uh, snare sound or uh -huh. something that just makes the record kind of make you go like, oh, we're making something new here. This yeah. is exciting. Yeah, you know? I agree. That's what people want. Everybody mm -hmm. wants new sounds and new singers and hooks in different places. And, um, you know, like the, 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 the rise of um, hip hop and the way that's become like a big, a bit like, big part of the pop charts it's um yeah kids just kids want to rock john yeah kids they do rock. they yeah. sure do uh okay i got a couple more of these but i'm going to save them for later we'll get to them near, closer to the end because i want to talk about johnny hates jazz 
Okay, let's keep I, this brief. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I had Clark on here, and um, I think about him a lot because um, I'm sure he's had to answer the question a million times, why did you leave at the height of the of their success? But I personally did not know the answer to that question, and I purposely didn't go about Googling it before I talked to him because that was the main thing I wanted to talk about, you know? Right. Did, and, he, uh, did he reveal? Was there a reveal? You know... It felt a little um, nebulous, I will say. Mm. It was a. It didn't feel very specific. Like yes, I. But it does seem like he's a sort of a heavy-hearted type person who, at the moment, was just like, "This is not what it's all that it's cracked up to be," and I'm gonna yeah. bail. You know what I mean? Actually, actually, uh, I, I've been working with him and Mike uh, last year. I was working. We did three or four songs together for a new album that yeah to put out. But Clark is actually really good. He's got a great sense of humor. As as a person, I think he's very passionate about um, and has been from very early days about um, ecology, yes. about women's rights. He's been wearing that stuff for years and years and years. He, he And I think around the time of the, their massive success, which I think their massive success was actually due to the drum machine that I lent them. Ah, but, uh, <laughs> yes. But uh, I, th I think um, maybe one of those situations where the, the, the success was so overwhelming mm -hmm. and the, the chemistry of personalities in the band, you know, um, personality differences that just, it was, it was just too heavy for him to take. Yeah. Stand, you know, so we all sure. find ourselves in life sometimes in a position where we go, um, I got to get out of this. I can't yeah. stand it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know until many, many years later. I mean, uh, you know, I know, I know things like Napster and those things are really bad for artists, but they're great for musical people who want to find yeah. things they didn't know existed before. Now there's YouTube, but prior to, and Spotify, yeah. but prior to that, it was really the best way. And, I remember 10 or 15 years ago being on a big Johnny Hates Jazz kick, and then I realized there was another album that you sang on, telling yes. stories, and I didn't even know that existed. Baby, should have known that it was late. Were you sleeping? Were you lying there awake? been crazy should have never gone this far the fool I didn't know I was breaking so far now I see how I was wrong see it so clearly Got, it trickled out somewhere in the world briefly and disappeared. Yeah, so, it was. Yeah. Well, it's John, what you're trying to say there in a very nice way is it was a massive flop. Well, <laughs> because it because it had no hit songs on it. And 
And, but I'm not saying uh, a creative flop. I'm, you know, it was more of a. I, I was. I like that album fine. You know, nah, it's, it's 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 drivel. It's Isn't just it? one of those things. Like in life, um, we we had a really good go at making that album, but um, we were a little bit directionless. Um, there was a lot of sad things happened whilst we were making the record, and you know, like the death of parents and, mm -hmm. and, uh, relationships. And it was just, it just wasn't meant to be. And you just have to, but the good thing is you kind of walk away and you go, maybe go like, I'm never, I'm never going to get do that again. You know, you learn from your mistakes, but, um, the actual, if I can, this is uh, part of Johnny Hayes jazz. That's often forgotten, um, or not talked about the actual name Johnny Hayes Jazz. The Johnny refers to is my brother, and the name. Oh. Yeah, there was there was a, a. He used to have a lot of house parties, and somebody had changed the record from whatever you know, like a punk punky record, and put on some, literally put on some jazz. And some and my brother ran down to you know like change it back, and somebody made the remark, "Oh, Johnny Hayes Jazz," and my, and my uh, Julie, my wife and partner for the last uh in 35 years said that would be a great name for a band almost the week or two afterwards they were looking for a band name and i said well what about johnny hayes jazz and they loved it so yeah and wow so, who knew that is great. well yeah yeah <laughs> do you want my john um before you move on from the 80s do you want to hear my ricky gervais story Oh, oh, or did you have something to do with Shauna dancing or whatever it is? Oh, you already know that. You already well, know that. I know that song, but I didn't know you had anything to do with it. Tell us. Yes, please. Well, here, so here we go. So it's about 1982. It seems like I'm the only person in London who knows how to program drum machines. You know, the, the, the very different, uh, various different makes, the Lynn drum, the, the um, Oberheim one. So the record company called call me up and say because they think i'm a genius because i can program a drum machine they, we've got this duo and we want you to produce them so you've got to, you know like five days to do do the a side and the b side so the the band turn up and the singer is you know like um we do a couple of tunes like on the third day i call up the record company and i say the, you know we're doing the b side and it's better than the a side mm -hmm. And, uh, the, and eventually, and that was the case that became, they, they flipped it round and, uh, the singer who was very passionate, actually both the, the there was a singer and a, a keyboard player. And I don't know what, uh, it was sort of like a, a synth duo, what you'd call a synth duo. Uh -huh. And, and, um, they were both very, they were, I think they were like psychology students. They were still at university. And they were they were both quite serious and passionate. Obviously, David Bowie fans. Uh -huh. And, and um, as it turns out, the singer was Ricky Gervais. No so I got on well with him. But he, 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 the Ricky Gervais that became the, um, you know, the global uh -huh. uh, comedian, was not uh, the Ricky Gervais I knew was. A, a passionate kind of uh, David Bowie fan who who was singing. There was there was no comedy. It huh. was all quite serious. Wow. And and we actually after Shona Dancer's dancing split, 
I made another record with Ricky when he was trying to do a solo thing, but that that didn't that the record didn't come out. But somewhere in the vaults is another. Uh... Oh, I would love to hear that. I actually really like that Shona. Uh, more more to come or more. I can't remember the name of the song, but it. Probably... Oh, it's actually, there's one called Bitter Heart. That's the one that. Um, I remember Bitter Heart. That was the one that I did. did a subsequent uh, a second single and then i think they got dropped so yeah oh that's so fascinating bitter heart you you produce i cannot believe you produced that that is great yeah yeah that is so funny and i wondered the same you know he's one of the uh how do i okay i'm just gonna say it i have was a huge i you know learned of him like most people did through the office and i've always thought he was hilarious and i love yes. him his persona is almost like it seems to be that he's going to be kind of a jerk or a, you know, prickly. Yes. And I'm starting to wonder if it's not really a persona so much yeah. anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's really the actual Ricky. Uh, yeah. He, he just kind of plays it. He goes from nine to 10 or 10 to 11, yeah. uh, you know, in public, but in reality he is kind of a prickly arrogant jerk, but I don't I, know. I still find him entertaining, but I'm questioning. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I have no idea because I've not seen him uh, since 1987. So, huh. uh, but I remember him being an earnest young man, uh, as great. we all as we all were, and uh, passionate about his music and uh, the oh, so the good. metamorphosis into the um, yeah. It, it's it's okay. just it's quite it's amazing what human beings can do, it, isn't it? it? Really, really is. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of albums you were associated with in the late A's that flopped, should we talk about Swamp for a second? Oh, because okay. I really like Swamp. I think oh. it's great. Well, <laughs> it was a bold, it was a bold, um, again, it was one of those, uh, my manager was pulling his hair out. You know, I was a hot producer and then I decided to, you know, go on the road with The Cure. Then I went back into producing and mixing and, career's going great and then i became obsessed i got to make it well i just i you know i i'm an artist and i just felt like i wanted to make a record so uh we went to every record company in the world and uh, my manager passed me this piece of paper one day and had all the lists of you know like warners sony uh emi virgin and on on the right so the names of the record company on the left and on the right-hand side, he'd written pass, pass, oh. pass, pass, pass. Like, 
just trying to give me the message that nobody is interested in in my mm-hmm. music. Uh-huh. But somehow we managed to, to to get a record deal with MCA in um, there was a label in America then, and um, I, we we managed to get the services of uh, one of Prince's acolytes, Andre Andre mm-hmm. Simone, mm-hmm. to produce, who was uh, you know like a mini it was a genius. You know, we made made a record that was what I was trying to do is sort of mix up pop and R&B and then have rock guitar. This was my big thing that was going to be that the there was going to be rock guitar on top of sort of R&B beats, pop songs, but with rock guitar. Mm. And uh, it's a it's a great it was a great concept, but but the record sucked big time you think so i think it's great it sounds just like what was popular at the time you know i mean it's got all the same production tricks that you would have heard on anything else around that time you are that's entirely correct i i just think i i was a decent writer but i wasn't a great singer so that's how i uh i think of that record as being like Mm. it was I, i you know i i put my heart and soul into it but i didn't ultimately as as we've said before there wasn't a hit yeah. there were a couple of songs that had good hooks but um i don't think my my <clears throat> you know my voice has uh, my singing voice has um has come up come on our way ways in the last 30 years oh wow yeah okay yeah, I, you know, uh, Love Me Like a Rock, I think, was a scene. Now, I say all this, I don't actually remember hearing these songs on the radio at the time, I have to be honest. No, there was no. I delivered it to the record company, and I got a review in the in um, Billboard, you know, the bit which was the big music business uh-huh. magazine, and then that was it. There were no ad, there were no ads. There were. I don't think they didn't spend a penny. Yeah. Um, trying to promote it at radio stations, so it okay. was. Uh, but these things happen. Yeah. And, um, that can't yeah. be easy. I mean. I'm I'm trying to think of it anytime I put my whole heart and soul into some creative endeavor that I'm excited for the world to hear 
And then to think that, you know, maybe my mom is the only one paying attention, (laughs) you know, that's heartbreaking. I love my mom, but that wasn't the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Well, you know, it's a case of um, case sera, sera, isn't it? It, At that point, you know, probably 87 or 88, I had made so many albums uh, as a producer, as a mixer, uh, writing songs for people that you just, okay, uh, it was, yeah, it was a tough time as well because, my mentor, who I've mentioned, the producer, Alex Hadkin, he died or as I was making that record. He died in a car crash, so it was a real yeah. tragedy. Oof. And that cast a shadow, perhaps, over the, the whole of that, that, um, that time. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I still think of him very fondly, and I know if he'd have been around, he would have helped me make it. He, he would have done his magic and, and made a hit for me, but... Yeah. Um, you know, it was it, it wasn't to be. So it was sure. a, you know what? It was a valiant effort, and I give myself uh, five gold stars. <laughs> I would give you at least five, three Thank and a half. I'd give it a three and a half out of five. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm me personally, not the record. The record, I would yes. give half a gold star. But, oh, uh, see, I I uh, I gave it three and a half on AllMusic.com yeah. just the other day. Oh, um, bless you. Bless sure, you. sure. Um, now one and this there may not even be a story here but my listeners know that I have a mild obsession with movie soundtracks especially of the 80s yes the song Bring Con- it on. The, okay she's, she's out of control yes the song concentration from the Tony Danza epic oh. she's out of control stories related to this no it was just in those days there was someone at the record there was a a, a lady at the record company kathy nelson who in the 80s you know that concept of putting pop songs into big hollywood movies was just especially the john hughes movies had just um started up and i think she found herself in a niche and um she'd been at my record company and you know somehow thought uh well, uh, either they thought we've lost so much record, or, so much money on this uh, Filthy Alley album, 
let's try and make it a little bit back by putting this song on a soundtrack. But it was a bit, that actually was quite a cool song. I, yeah. I think that was quite a cool song. Unlike some of the other ones, I'd produced that in my bedroom. So that just oh. goes to, you okay. know. But thanks for, thanks for remembering that one. It, it was, a, sure. it was, um, yeah, had a good, good. It had a good, it had a good vibe, and um, the singer could have done better, but well, but, whatever, whatever. I, I disagree. Did you ever get to meet Tony Danzer or go to the premiere or oh, anything I, special I, like that? No, I, I was so, I was so thrilled to just have my music on anywhere near a film. So, okay. uh, good. and I would have loved to have met Tony Danzer. Yeah, but okay. I, I didn't get that chance. Yeah. Okay, just curious. Nice. Uh, if any uh, Thompson Twins obsessives are listening, there's I think Tom Bailey's on this album too, and I really like the song "Listen," which I yeah. know was also a Johnny Hates Jazz song, but you wrote it, and I love that song. Yeah, thanks. That that was actually yeah, that was my that was my first song that really made some serious money because of the Johnny Hayes Jazz album. Mm, okay. And, and uh, not that that's why I write songs, but no, it of was, course, it was from from the standpoint of my own personal pride, having a song that appears on a statement that is yep. is um, that gives you that that makes you go like, oh, people do like my stuff. I should keep keep doing this. So, yep. Yep. And I did. Yes, you did, and that leads us to Torn. So we got to uh, talk about Torn. Right. Um, yeah. So for anyone who does not know, Torn was actually a cover of a song by a band called Edna Swap. But I saw a man brought to life. Yeah, he was warm. He came around like he was dignified. Showed me. That's what's going on Nothing's fine. 
and uh, you co-wrote that for them. And then eventually, I I don't know. You'll have to tell us. Someone brings you in, I assume, to work with this young up-and-coming chanteuse named Natalie Imbruglia, and you give her, oh, why don't you try this song of ours? Is that well, kind of how it is? There are some some elements of that, correct? Um, the song was actually written um, by myself and Anne Previn and Scott Cutler, who it was written um, just to get boring details. Uh, it was Anne Previn was making um, a demo tape for herself as an artist and uh, uh, as a solo artist, you know, a great singer, fantastic writer. So we recorded four or five tunes. It was a good chemistry. Anne was a singer and, you know, wrote all the lyrics. And uh, Scott was, uh, I guess, what you would call like now a tastemaker, you know, and, and I had all the technical abilities and the musical abilities to play the stuff. So that, we did that demo, and would you believe it, I, I, they took it round to record companies, nobody's interested. I took it round the UK record companies, one person was interested, and then their interest faded. Anyway, so Scott and Anne um, then decided to form a band, uh, which was Edna Swap. So, and then they got signed to a record deal, they recorded a version of it that, that was quite kind of, um, heavy, you know, grunge was a big thing, and um, it was quite dirgy. So the song was actually written six or seven years before it became torn. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and uh, it had been covered by two, I think, four artists. You know, um, there was a Danish A&R man called Paul Brun, who uh, just you know, just loved the song right from the start. He recorded it with two of his artists. Meanwhile, I could, I was, couldn't get arrested as a songwriter. I took that song on my on my demo reel round to publishers. Oh. Nobody was interested. Isn't that amazing? It sure and is. There's so many geniuses in the in publishing and, and record companies, as you probably are aware. Oh, yeah. yeah um, there are there are about two, there are one or two, but. Eventually, I got a publishing deal, and my publisher was a fellow called Mark Fox, who, used, who was in the band Haircut 100. Oh, I love them. I love yeah. Them. Wait, is said, Mark, sorry to interrupt, is Mark yes. the guy who sang, who yes. took over as the lead singer after Perfect. Nick left? Yeah, uh, he, he is a riot. He's a massive personality. So he's yeah. my publisher. Um, and we, Mark called me in for a meeting, and Natalie was there. We're in Mark's office, a very small office, and Natalie and me meet, and and, and Mark literally says, you know, um, Natalie, I, I think because I was cold in career terms, uh, wasn't getting any work, hmm. and um, Natalie had been in um, an actor, and now she was out of work, and uh, Mark said, I think, you know, I think you should do, I think you should produce Natalie singing Torn. So, um, and it happened so fast. So the next week, we're in my studio uh, um, recording Natalie singing the demo, uh, her demo of Torn. And we followed to, almost like to the letter, the version that um, Anne had sung um, six years previously. This was a much poppier version of the, uh, a much poppier arrangement of the same song. So, 
the next week, the, uh, the record company have now heard this demo and they come down to actually to my studio and to see if Natalie can, you know, if she can sing and a little audition. And of course she can, and she looks fabulous. And then within the space of months, I suppose she was signed. We carried on writing mm. together and the record came out instead of usually with record companies, you start the process and the record comes out 18 months, two years later. It's mm. so boring. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it, I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they don't understand the concept of pop music means now. Yeah. What's hot now is, you know, put it mm -hmm. out now like mm -hmm. they used to. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so in this instance, they did. They put mm -hmm. it out very quickly and it became this phenomenal worldwide smash. Honestly, with the making of the record, there was a fantastic team. Mark Fox was the A&R man. We had... Um, uh, the guys from the group Zero Seven. Oh, I love them. I yeah. didn't know that. I love Zero Seven. Yeah, they did. They so they did the drum programming, mm. and uh, uh, my friend David Monday played the slide guitar, and I played the other instruments. Everything just kind of fell into place. And then the yeah. terrific Nigel Godrich, who had uh, was a produced uh, young producer at the time, who was doing Radiohead and Beck, and mm. had been my assistant. No he way. had been my assistant, and now he was the hottest guy in town, and he agreed to mix it, which was like the icing, because he kind of, he really, uh, everybody added something to it that became, yeah, you know, this phenomenon, ph phenomenal record that is still getting played all across the world, yeah. and it, it, was, it was, can you imagine for me of years oh. of like having hits, then being like unemployed and then being in a band and then being unemployed, then having some more. It, this this record just surpassed everything, you know, and now whenever people talk to me, they say um, the two big things are you you were the co-writer and producer of Torn and you were in The Cure. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're two pretty cool things that people <laughs> remember. Uh, and, right. and that's, how my, that's my, how my career and is defined apart from of course astral drive which of course uh, yeah uh, now so, now uh, available in stores now available on <laughs> itunes spotify um and um anywhere good music is streamed thank you thank yes. you yes uh, sure so uh now let me i'm just going to ask you point blank you had to have done really well financially how did your life change and well for starters can you live off torn money the rest of your life are you is that uh, a song that gets licensed enough today that there's a steady stream of income to you know yeah it, with? with the mechanics of how the music industry works every time you hear a song on that old-fashioned format called radio the uh, it, the songwriters receive a, a royalty so what I will say is that it paid for my kids to go through school. So, nice. and, 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 and having like worked insanely hard for year for at that time, I'd done like 20 years in the music business and it was, it felt really like it was, it was, it felt like a vindication yeah. and that I could finally, um, almost like relax a little yeah. bit because, I. It's it's tough, 
it's tough working in the in the music business. Not that I don't love it. It's it's just it's hard to make a living. I I was you know I was principally always wanted to be a songwriter, but I'm I made a living from being a, an engineer, a producer, a mixer, a bass player, um, and <clears throat> if you want to be in the music business, you've got to have be able to um, like change horses all the time because um, unless you unless you're having hits hit after hit right. um, and that doesn't happen very often so yeah. it was just nice to have a, such a big hit that um i was able to exhale for a couple of years uh, and go, yeah Oof. yeah good for you i Thank as you. a fan of yours i i will admit i've never that was not my favorite song or anything like that i was in college at the time and that, that felt i was a little, getting a little grittier with my musical tastes yes. at yes. the moment you know what i mean and so she felt a little bit like she's so gorgeous, but she felt yeah. a little bit like a like a prefabricated pop chanteuse yeah. that you know the labels are telling me I'm supposed to like a little bit. And I was I'm 22 yeah. or something, 23, and I'm getting oh. a ver an aversion to that sort of I sense and feeling. But well, um, so you should when you're 22. But right, uh, you know, you're starting to kind of you know yeah. your mind is expanding in other directions. But as a fan of yours. I am always so grateful that you're the guy who gets to benefit from a lot of that. You deserve oh, it you. wholeheartedly. Thank you. So, thank you, John. Thank you. Absolutely. That's, that's nice of you to say. Well, good. Um, I feel like I can be honest with you. I feel like we've, you know, we're, we're, uh, the lines of communication are very open here. And so I thought I could tell you that without it hopefully being offensive or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. now, okay, let's, uh, the last big one that I have on the list is Brian Adams. And yeah. how yeah. that happened and why and uh, tell well, us we, this. We can connect the dots immediately because um, the success of Torn meant that uh, you know I had a you know this massive, massive massively successful record, um, or Natalie did, and I was in I was in the glow of that. So I had a mutual friend who who um, was also Brian Adams A and R person, and. Uh, he called me up, uh, David Rose. He called me and said, uh, he, he said, do you want to work? You want to work with Brian Adams? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I said, are you kidding? Because I was getting, at that point, having been like nobody interested in who I was or what I could do, everybody was now calling up. A record company is, uh, you know, saying, will you write for this artist? Will you produce this artist? Mm -hmm. it, which was amazing. But of course now, you're in a situation instead of having to pretty much take whatever work you're given, mm -hmm. you now go in, okay, um, I'm going to have to pick. I'm going to have to pick and choose. And when he said, Brian, I was like, that, that was the one I was like, mm -hmm. yes, you know, without a doubt, that's It's going to be a challenge pretty much like that. The day later, Brian calls up and says, Oh, come round and let's do some songwriting. So, and he lives in uh, Chelsea, which is in an area of London, not far from where I am. Mm. So um, we went round and started a songwriting session. You know, he's in the kind of Lennon and McCartney tradition. You both got guitars, sing ideas at each other. And I'm going, we did two, two, two hours or something. And I, I, I'm going like, oh man, I've blown this. I'm working with like one of the best singers in the world seriously uh -huh. you know, it's just unbelievable singer and i haven't come up with anything that's he you know he was cool yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm just about to walk out the door. And I said, let me just play you one other idea. Mm -hmm. And um, which and I played it for him. He said, play it again. And, and then, of course, he said, I love it. So we finished that song off. And that was became the title track of an album he had out in about 2000 called On a Day Like Today. Yeah. Free is all you gotta be. Dream dreams no one else can see. Sometimes you wanna run away. But you never know what might be coming round your way Yeah, yeah, yeah So on a day like today The whole world could change The sun's gonna shine Shine through the rain On a day like today You never wanna see the sun go I had a couple of songs on there and, um, you know, obviously worked with uh, Keith Scott, who you've had on your show. Yeah. And also um, I, I, I produced and written a couple of tracks with Brian, but Bob Rock was actually the uh, celebrated producer, was doing most of the album. Mm. So um, uh, they asked me to kind of like play guitar on everything, um, you know, like just try stuff. And I'm... My confidence was through the roof. I'd had this this big hit record, and and yeah. I I tell you that was just talking about it. That's I'm glad I remembered that because the confidence I yeah. suddenly had to be able to stand in front of Bob Rock or Brian Adams and go, "Give me a Les Paul, yeah, I'll play something on that, and uh, let me try some acoustic guitar, let me try some bass." And, and Bob Rock's a fantastic producer, yep. and, you know, and Brian is a very vibey guy too. So that was the start of my um, principally songwriting relationship with, uh, with Brian. And then we wrote, we've been writing for the 20 years since. And then in the last couple of years, he, he, uh, he asked me to um, the uh, regular bass player in his band um, had to duck out mm -hmm. and, and so I came in as the temporary. Yeah, I ended up playing, you know, across the world. Yeah. The rock and roll dreams come true, John. <laughs> it sounds like it. Except uh, I'm a little bummed because I saw Brian uh, here in Denver at Red Rocks. I assume you're familiar with what Red Rocks is. I know Red Rock is a beer, isn't it? Well, Red Rocks is an outdoor concert oh. amphitheater. If you remember U2's Under a Blood Red Sky and okay. the Sunday, Bloody Sunday, this iconic, you know, he's waving the white. That was filmed at Red Rocks, which is here okay. in Colorado where I live. Yeah. And I saw them, I saw them on this tour back in, I think it was the beginning of June. And um, you weren't there. I didn't know you were even a part of all of this. But now that I've read that you were playing bass with him and yeah. that you left short, um, you know, 
shortly, I'm guessing, before I saw them, that would have been really fun to have been able to say, I got to see you in concert playing with Brian, of all people. Yeah, I really, I really, really miss it. But I, I think because I was the temporary and Brian wanted someone to be to be permanent and and uh, so Soul is uh, uh, became, you know, became the permanent guy. Yeah. And, um, no, and, and everything's good. And good. whilst we're talking about Colorado, I've I've I uh, I've been through Denver a few times. I know the Cure. We went through Denver, mm-hmm. but I've been skiing out there. Oh, you really? Know, three or four times. And once I got um, altitude sickness. My crazy cousin. Um, I arrived in Denver. He took me up. You know, however much higher you go than Denver. Yeah, and and we skied. So Loveland is like the second highest elevation of a ski resort, and uh, so we skied there for about you know six hours, at, at, almost immediately after flying in. And surprisingly enough, I got very sick the next day. Oh, that happens. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I had to draw in. You know, I, it was so horrible. Yeah, uh, and I had to come back down to Denver to even feel like a human being again that was pretty horrible anyways huh. colorado love good colorado. to know okay yeah i'm originally from salt lake city which is utah the next state over they're also known for their skiing i didn't know if you'd ever skied there before but that's no, where we, I grew we, up. we played salt lake city with the cure i remember that mm, okay about 83 i would think oh yeah. goodness wow i was i was a kid yeah. okay there's so well look phil there's so many I have more things here that I could throw at you, but one thing I'm thinking is that I, I've asked so many of the questions I want to know about, but I have a feeling I'm robbing you of an opportunity to share us the stories that I wouldn't have known to ask about. Ah. Is there, are there a couple that rise to the top of just like, they're fun, they're juicy, they're name dropping, whatever it is that you would want to share? No, you know, that's what the great thing about uh, this sort of conversation is that you you're prodding my memory and uh now you're sort of uh, i'm <laughs> trying to i can't prod myself it's it's difficult to, <laughs> well i didn't uh, know if you had a few like you know oh, in the holster you that you're like ready to go with okay oh no 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 i i've got I, I for some reason this just floats i i was once asked to audition for mick jagger's band really yeah and i and i didn't go i don't know what an idiot why didn't i try that if you mention some other records, I'd... Uh... Well, let me throw like one or two more at you and then I promise we're done. I This means so oh, much cool. to me, Phil. Cool. I really, really appreciate it. No I problem. Hope it's yeah. okay. Good. Um, Love Breaks Down, Prefab Sprout. Oh, there you go. Tell me about it. Ah, now that's Gorgeous good. song. Gor- I mean, gorgeous. And you yeah. were involved. Love breaks down.
were, but I think they were called CBS in those days that became Sony. We went to the studio, Prefab Sprout, which at that they just had a new uh, bass player who was um, Paddy's brother, hmm. uh, Martin, and the singer, the harmony singer, Wendy. Um, so it was a tight, there's four of them. And uh, so we, it, as it was usual around that time, had five days to record um, an A-side and a B-side. When you're a producer, you run, you, I guess, especially when you're younger, you feel the pressure to deliver. So the band set up, they, they had this new drummer, Neil Conte, who was really good. Like for a British drummer, it, it was very difficult to find decent British drummers around that time. So d they did the first take of the tune and, and like Paddy's on keyboards and his brother Martin's on bass. Uh, and I go, they did the first take. And I go, that's it. <laughs> like how often? It doesn't happen very often. I'm uh -huh. just like, that sounded great. And, and then um, the bass player, uh, Paddy's brother, um, he disagreed. My first boss was uh, the the uh, the brilliant impresario Mickey Most, who'd been the producer of Hermits, Hermits, and The Animals, Hot Chocolate, Kim Wilde. And I'd seen him use this line on many other people before, and now it was my turn. And so I turned to Martin, I said, do you want to produce this record or shall I? Mm. And which coming from a 24, arrogant little 24 year old <laughs> shit, that wasn't a great way to start the session. Mm -hmm. So, but nonetheless, um, we persevered and uh, Patty, just a genius. Wendy, this beautiful voice. And on the last day, I'm, I'm thinking we're missing something. We're missing something. So I actually borrowed an idea from 10CC that they they'd used on I'm I'm not in love. This technical process, which now you could do you could do with any synthesizer, but in those days you had to use tape. Where um, Wendy would sing, um, I would say like sing R as long as you can, and then I'd so maybe for four seconds, and then I'd make a tape loop out of that, mm -hmm. which is where you um, splice the tape, join it together. And so when it goes round, it, it makes a continual ah, ah, on and on and on. And um, so I did, I had her do that far more tunefully um, with a bunch of notes that were in the key of, the, of when love breaks down. So the, 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 the end of the process was I was able to control what's what was now almost like a tape machine synthesizer with all these everlasting notes i think that was an instance where i uh i really came up with the right sound for the right song and the a and r man came down who was muff winwood steve winwood's brother mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he heard it once he said that's a hit mm. that's a hit straight off uh, but unfortunately um you, although I, you know, delivered the record that I got fired for because I was such an arrogant bastard. <laughs> so you win some, you lose some. Okay. Um, and then um, Tom Dolby, who, who who I actually knew then, he went on to produce the rest of the record. Yep. And I know Tom wouldn't do would say that, but people say, oh, Tom Dolby produced When Love Breaks Down. But if you look if you look close enough at the credits, Thank that's. You. Uh, Okay. I, I did. It. I'm proud of it. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, okay. Two more. 
two more, okay? And then I promise I'll let you go. Um, okay, tell me about Ash, Girl from Mars. Ah, yeah. So uh, we earlier we were talking about like career highs and lows, mm -hmm. and uh, being unemployed. And I was um, my um, I had a friend who had been an artist who knew them that the band Ash. He, he uh, Simon um, knew their manager and I was so this was after sort of like the beginning of the 90s I think something like that and um, I couldn't get arrested I, people didn't want my songs people didn't want me to record companies didn't want me to produce and all of a sudden I get a phone call about well would you mix this band I don't know if I even asked to listen to the song because I needed a gig you know uh, so uh, and I was so I was so anxious. I was just like my confidence was so low. Right. Um, but somehow I just did a great job. Yeah. I did a really good job on that uh, on that tune. I made some good decisions. It was a great song. Um, the 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 band, uh, um, especially Tim, was a very bright. He, he I think he was like seventeen or eighteen. What a bright, what a bright guy! Yeah, and um, we—I think we redid the lead vocal. He did that in one take. We redid the guitar, and then mixed it, and then um, yeah, and then so that became Good. like the first um, record I'd had in probably three or four years that had got on the wow. radio. Good yeah, so that song it was great. That band is it. great. I've always liked them. Yeah. Um, now, did you you produce uh, Cindy Lauper's version of what's going on? I didn't produce it. I I was the mixer. Um, okay. Yeah, they that came. Um, I guess that that, that uh, because again, I, I was working for the producer Alex Sadkin, and really, um, the, the the mixing gig had been given to him. But because I was I was his, um, you know, his yeah. his partner. Right. Uh, I did it. So, and uh, in fact, here's a here's a an arresting anecdote, perhaps. Uh, Cindy Lauper wasn't actually there, although I did meet her a year year or so later. We were mixing it in London, and I think she was making a film in Ecuador. She was having a, you know, she was a big 
pop, yeah. pop star, but she had a go, I guess, like Madonna at uh, yeah. being an actor. It's called and Vibes. It's a terrible movie. It's called Vibes. It's yeah, a, okay. yeah. Anyway, so so we're in um, Rack Studios in, in in London, and it's probably you know ten o'clock in the evening, and she calls up. So this is maybe eighty-five, something like that, eighty-six. She calls up from Ecuador. So before Wi-Fi, so this is a <laughs> like a copper wire that is going from Ecuador underneath the Atlantic, well across the country to the Atlantic Ocean um, to London to Rack Studios. So we played at the mix over the phone, and you know, can you imagine what the fidelity was like? It was, yeah. no, it was. But she did say, she said, "There's too much echo on the vocal." Really? She could tell yeah. that? Oh, man. Well, well, I guess maybe because either she had an opinion or maybe just at that moment, you know, the, the quality of the line yeah. went from awful to disastrous. So, but her A&R man um, was, was in the control room. He says, that's what Cindy, Cindy said it, so we've got to do it. Yeah, so huh. it, was a, it was an odd choice for um, a cover song, but, but um, what okay. a cool original god who doesn't oh. love Mark day oh man the greatest that's why i thought I, I i i've always thought that was an interesting choice for a cover interesting per i like cindy fine but just a like who yeah. thought who thought of that was that uh, and was it a good idea was it, i don't know she did a great job but it's such an iconic song uh, it seems it's one of those that you don't really need to touch but yeah, no, I touched anyway, you know. And so maybe, I just... maybe, maybe there were, maybe it was. I don't know if it was. Maybe it was for political. You know, it's, it's mm, obviously a politically charged song. Yeah. Maybe there was some point, some other point apart from, you know. Of course, Marvin Gaye's version is genius. Yeah. Uh, everything about it—the strings, the, the chords, and, and of course his voice. So perhaps she wanted to do it for a cause, or I, I don't. I don't know what the. The, the uh, context was, but you're right. It was a that's that's a bold one. Yeah, it sure uh, is. Yeah. In fact, if I can just um, for I, I covered the Todd Rundgren song um, "A Dream Goes On Forever" um, just recently in in an a cappella style, also available on Spotify and iTunes. But a dream goes on forever I'm left standing here, I got nothing to say Only silent within my dream A thousand true loves will live and die But a dream lives on forever Days and years will go streaking by But the time has stopped in my dream We all have our everyday hopes and fears And you'll find no exception in me But that doesn't get me through a sea of tears My dream lives on forever Guess I believe 
one day For without it there is no dream And, and um, which again is might be a song that uh, uh, Todd Rungren officiandos might go, well, why are you doing that? But I didn't, I, I think I tried to bring my own flavor to it. And as I said, it's all voices. It's a vocal. Interesting. But, so it is, uh, I'm very pleased with it. Yeah. Good. We'll play a little bit of it right here so people can get a sense of what you're talking about. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Well, uh, Phil, I mean, there's... Uh, there's still millions more, but I, I've kept you for a couple hours. And, and there are things that I know you've done that I don't know that much about. And so I didn't ask them. Like yes. Pixie Lot. And I know there's other things that I'm really curious about, but I feel like I've kept yeah. you forever. And I will say, and we're, I saved it to the end because we're going to play it as our closeout song. One of my very favorite songs ever, and it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure, is Back Here by B.B. Mac. Which, yes. <laughs> love that yeah, song. I'm very proud of that song. Good. Um, you know that's uh come torn was a hit and about six months later uh back here you know was was a big hit in america too yeah and i couldn't have been more proud and i'd still still in touch with those guys bb mac have just reformed in fact oh good they're gonna, they're gonna put out another album but i'm very proud of that song because um i think as much as uh like torn for instance was uh, a collaboration with two other writers but my role in it perhaps uh was uh more more of a, a sort of an arranger hmm. and um whereas with the BB, with the back here i i i you know i was we wrote it together but mm -hmm. um i felt like my contribution was well i'm very proud of my contribution good i'm good. very happy that people are still playing it and i love uh, that song great boys yeah. all everything i just said about why i didn't care for Natalie that much at the time because I was, you know, a little too cool being a angry, you know, conflicted yeah. college student yeah. flies out the window of why I actually loved back here at a time when I probably shouldn't have, but I did. So anyway, uh, Guilty pleasures. exactly. Phil, you're the best. Thank you for talking to me. I've had a, I, that name has stuck in my head for most of my life. And every time I see it, I think, hey, there it is again. What's what's this? Yeah. If he's associated, I'm interested. You know what uh, I mean? Yeah. Is so, he still alive? Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. still alive. So yeah. anyway, thanks for all you've put out into this world. If you can't tell, I love so much of it a lot. Yeah. So, Thanks, anyway, John. You bet. Keep, keep, keep plugging that Astral Drive record for me. Thank you very much. I will, happily. There you have it, Phil Thornelli. Wasn't that great? So much great music from this guy. I love it. Thank you so much, Phil. And I didn't mention it before, but a huge thanks to uh, fellow podcaster, the great Brad Page of the I'm In Love With That Song podcast for helping and contributing to this episode. I had had Phil in mind for years to get him on the show, but it was Brad and I going back and forth and me feeding off of his love for Todd Rundgren that sort of inspired me finally getting down to business and finding and making it happen. So thank you, Brad, for contributing. Now, next week is our 200th episode, and we have another very special guest lined up for next week. Uh, I can tell you you're going to love it. I'm going to keep it a secret. I will tell you that he is probably one of the most distinctive guitarists in uh, British alternative rock history, I would think. Uh, 80s. British. I'm going to leave it at that. I don't want to get any more into it. But anyway, that's what we're up for next week, okay? I think you're going to love it. 
Now, as always, a huge thanks to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Makevich, for putting everything together. You're the best, buddy. Thanks for being my partner with this. You guys can find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday, and uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be throwing a lot of content at you. In fact, uh, there should be bonus episodes or extra episodes each of the next two weeks. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We will talk to you later. <laughs>